in today's episode, I have with me someone named Mark Nelson. And um, I worked for Mark starting in 2015 for a few years at uh, his current company, which is called Equium. And uh, so I'm very excited to have Mark on. Um, I really uh, um, look up to Mark in a lot for a lot of things. Uh, one of them is his visionary, um, the way that he looks at marketing and sales uh, when, when looking at a company. Uh, when we're building a product, oftentimes people are more interested in the technology and thinking about the technological aspects and those challenges, but there's bigger challenges that you, that you also face, obviously, otherwise your company never gets off the ground, and those are the sales and marketing challenges. And I've had some super interesting conversations um, with Mark over the years as we were talking about different products and, and how Mark was gonna get those out into the marketplace. And um, so anyway, Mark has a, a big success story back in the uh, 80s and 90s, and now he's working on his uh, third big success story because he also had a vineyard that he built and sold. Um, but let's just start with the with the questions, Mark, and, and see how it goes. Oh, great. Thank you. All right. Um, so your first company was started in the late 80s. And uh, I think I remember you started it while you were still in college. Is that right? It was actually right after college. Um, right after college. And, yeah. And I, um, I I graduated with a, with a degree in English literature. Um, mm-hmm. And it was sort of funny because I remember distinctly um, coming out of college and having never touched a computer and thinking, well, the computer generation just passed me by, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, I, I'm never going to do anything with computers. <laughs> too late. But, yeah, too late, really. Um, and, um, but anyway, I started working for a couple guys who were consulting to the pharmaceutical industry and I got very interested in computers and they were building a database for a drug company to track adverse effects of a, for, um, for a class of drugs. And so <clears throat> I started just by going and taking printouts from the searches that they did on mainframes, going to a library, photocopying them and, and bringing them back to enter in the database. We eventually, <clears throat> uh, after a few months, I expressed interest in it. And they, so they, they said, well, you can learn, why don't you learn how to search this database? And it's called Medline, it's the world's premier medical database. So, um, I, I learned searching and after I, I learned it, I thought, God, this would be so much easier on a computer, right? Um, a PC rather. So um, at that point I decided to um, first write an interface to this thing called Medline because the mainframe interfaces at that time were, were terrible, you know? Um, and so I spent, I bought a big bunch of books on C, C programming language. Um, and I wrote this UI to, to Medline. And just about the time I finished it, um, I was gonna try to market it. And the way I was gonna try to market it was by um, having an advertisement on the back of this pamphlet that I'd written and sold for, I guess it was, like $50 a piece or something, but that, that there's a little document that showed how to search um, Medline using these different um, mainframe systems. I intended to put an ad on the back of that 
Um, uh, and however, the, uh, the mainframe companies objected. And so I was just sort of dead in the water in terms of marketing. Hmm. So I decided that I was going to go ahead and, and write the back end, the search engine for hmm. this as well. Um, and that took me probably, uh, probably a total of four years. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, um, and it was, um, you know, it, it was, it, it actually, because I knew searching, because I knew what I was looking for in a search engine, I, you know, that's sort of like, I think the best way to code is, you know, you know what you want and then mm -hmm. you can code it, you know, it's a great, great way. So, yeah. so I did that. I brought this product out um, and the way I marketed it was, it was to medical li libraries and for a hundred dollars, you could buy a list of the 2000 medical libraries in the US. So I bought this list for hundred bucks mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it came with mailing labels, like, so you know, wrote this letter and put the mailing labels on these, you know, 1500 envelopes and sent, sent them out. Yep. Uh, and um, I got a couple responses. Most of them were, were like, come on, you gotta be kidding me. You got, you can't do this. You can't do this on a PC. <laughs> and, um, wow. and, and once, um, you know, a couple of people saw it and saw it was for real, then it was, you know, word of mouth. So that that marketing was, was direct marketing um, and it worked very well. But the, the big driver, and I like to think of this as, you know, the, the hyper marketing we did is that the libraries, librarians who got the product were so enthusiastic about it that they became our advocates inside these institutions. You know, they would, they would, you know, we would call them uh, or they'd call us and they'd say, okay, we got to think about how we can sell this to, you know, to the medical school, <laughs> you know, um, and they basically became, you know, all of a sudden we had a thousand <laughs> sales reps, you know, um, but it would, but the, the, the driver of that was that they loved the software, right? So I, you know, I, I think the lesson I learned from that is you create, create a product that people get very enthusiastic about um, they'll become your advocate, whether it's inside their institution or talking to their friends or, or, or whatever. But um, so I think, okay, and just to change that. So um, we, company grew, uh, we took it public in 1994 and in 1998, um, I sort of saw the dot-com crash coming. I wasn't sure when it was gonna come, but uh -huh. so I, we sold the company for $200 million to uh, Walter's Kluwer, a scientific publisher. Wow. Yeah. Um, so when you um, when you said that the search or the medical databases that were there were the inter interfaces were terrible, right? So that was your first. Did you feel like the, the, you could improve upon the user experience of them, or was it more the functionality of them? Well, actually, both. Um, um, I first started from the user experience point of view, for sure. Um, so, you know, it, you know, it, in the, in the mainframe systems, you had to, um, for example, you had to say period, period, slash AU equals somebody's name slash MJ equals heart attack, whatever. <laughs> um, and in, you know, in our system, you know, you could just put in a term 
heart attack or whatever, you yeah. know, and it would just do everything behind the scenes for you. So it's definitely user experience first. But then I also realized that there was a lot of stuff we could do on the PC and we could do it very quickly yeah. that, you know, would take them years on the mainframe. So we were able to move extremely quickly because we were, you know, PC based. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think I, I think I remember the, what was it, the statistics of, of how many hospitals you had sold the software to, um, yeah. but it was a lot of hospitals in the United States. Yeah. Well, by the time we sold the company, um, there are over a thousand hospitals in the U.S. Uh -huh. using it. And uh, more than two thirds of the medical schools worldwide um, were using it. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's, it's uh, here's, here's a quick anecdote. Um, uh, I had a doctor's appointment um, a few weeks ago where I had a, a minor, you know, surgery, something needed to take off my skin. But um, mm -hmm. um, I was talking to the doctor about um, medlines, you know, and, and then I, you know, at some point I told him, you know, well, have you heard of Ovid? And he said, of course, everybody uses it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, um, and he was sort of blown away. And, he, and at one point he, he said, you know, Ovid really, more than anything else, changed the course of medical research and really wow. raised, raised the standard of patient care. And actually I've never really thought about that, you know, but, awesome. but yeah, it really was true. And I just, you know, it, it, Obviously, made me feel good, um, but um, yeah, it was interesting from that point of view. But um, so, his did he say using like everybody uses it, or it was yeah. it still? Yeah, he said he said all the doctors. You know, this is a Memorial Sloan Kettering. Does all the doctors have Ovid IDs? Um, wow. Yeah, and my my daughter goes to Columbia, and yeah, Ovid's all over the place. So wow, um, yeah, that is that is really cool. After Ovid Software, so you, I know you did some other projects. You said that was 1998 and um, you, you had some other projects going on. I think they were all nonprofit types of things and sort of like things that you were passionate about because I know you were a classical languages or classical, um, classical literature expert uh, or you know, that was, I think, your course of study. So um, can you talk about some of those projects and, and sure. yeah. Right, so um, one of them, it's this, it's during, let's say, the period from 2000 to 2007, more or less. Um, one of the things is I always wanted to read the Homer's Odyssey in the original Greek. And mm -hmm. so I um, decided to, to, to do that, to learn the original Greek. And I started with you know, a dictionary and a grammar and syntax and all these books. Mm -hmm. um, after about you know, 10 minutes, I thought, gosh, this would be so much <laughs> easier on the computer. Right? Oh, yeah. So, I started designing software to facilitate the learning of ancient Greek um, and Latin for that matter. And it was called Alpheus and it's still, it's still around. I mean, um, there are four people currently working on it. Um, oh. And um, it was um, Perseus at, um, at Tufts University is the, is the premier classical site. And the director of that program you know, found out about Alpheus and was really enthused. And so we had this partnership with them where um, we, you know, they used Alpheus for um, a bunch of stuff and we used some of their technology on the back end. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that project's ongoing. Um, and like you said, it, it is nonprofit. Um, the other thing that uh, was also in the nonprofit realm was um, my kids were, you know, at they're born in 2000. So they were, um, uh, you know, we were looking for schools for them. And we pretty much stumbled upon this Montessori school uh, where we were in, in Northern California. And we were so enthusiastic about what we saw. Mm -hmm. And we toured the school and watched the kids and just, we were just amazed. Um, mm -hmm. And so we got very involved in the school at that point. It had gone. Uh, it had gone up to sixth grade, and it was in these basically three construction trailers on this on this um, lot behind this Baptist church. <laughs> and and um, so the you know one of the first things we we're going to do was find a new location for it because it was um, uh, we wanted to expand it. We wanted to go from not stop at sixth grade, but ultimately go through high school. Mm -hmm. uh, so we found this beautiful property, uh, you know, uh, also in town and um, spearheaded this program to build a new campus for this Montessori program. And um, it's, you know, it's, it was completed probably in 2012, I want to say, um, I'm not positive, but, I, and currently it goes through um, ninth grade uh, but this just this year, they're starting. They have a tenth grader, so they're starting to. You know, so, so that's and and of course, our kids went through you know through that program up up until ninth grade when that's all they went to at that point. So, yeah. uh, but anyway, that was the other um, you know big nonprofit I see. Uh, yeah. project. And then there was the winery, <laughs> um, so, right? Which, which is a profit, of course. Well, in name, in profit, in fact, it's unprofitable. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the, the thing they say about the way, <clears throat> the way to make a small fortune in the wine business is to start with a very large fortune. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I heard, I've, I've heard it take something like 10 years of building a vineyard to, to eventually reach a profit. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, it took us uh, almost, well, more, it took us 16 years. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and, and we, you know, we started from scratch. We just had bare ground. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we prepared the land. That took us a year, planted the vines another year. And then it's usually four years before you have grapes from the, from the ground. From the um, yeah. So that's already at six years. And then, um, you know, and then it just slowly ramps up. So, um, you know, and, and the cost, of, we are aiming for the very high end. Yeah. Um, and so the cost of farming and producing wine at the high end um, is extremely expensive. And, it's, and like I said, we didn't, we didn't break even until 16 years later. Um, wow. So, yeah, but it was, it was, you know, it was more um, a, passion project rather than a, you know we weren't in it to make money you know yeah. we actually didn't want it to be a money loser but our objective was was to make something great and not you know not to make money uh, on it and um so I, and it's all 
in, in 2017, we sold the company to um, a, a winery named Silver Oak. Um, it's a, it's a oh. yeah. Well, yeah. I'm pretty sure I've had some of their wine. Yeah, Silver Oak. It's it's they have a they make a lot of wine. It's very prominent. Um, and um, it, it, it turns out the owner of Silver Oak um, uh, was somebody was a parent in the school. Oh, sort of okay. And um, <clears throat> so his name was David. I just called David up and said, David, you know, I think we're going to sell the winery. You know, um, let's talk. You know, and so he came over. At, like, you know, in an hour, he had the deal hammered out. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, yeah, and 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 the other um, interesting thing was the guy now managing the um, man, managing the winery day to day is was all, is also a parent at the school, um, and I'd known I'd gotten to know him quite well before any winery involvement, and so David had hired his name Jack to run the winery. He still does that today. So. So my best friends, you know, own the winery and running the winery. So it worked out. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, so, you know, cautionary tale for anyone who wants to start a, start a vineyard. It's not, yeah. not like quick, yeah. quick money. Yeah. So it, it, just talking about the sales and marketing of, of the winery for a second. Yeah. Um, so if you sell your wine directly to consumers, mm -hmm. you know, like a mailing club, you, you get 100% of the sales price. If, if you go through just distribution, you get roughly 50% of the sales price. So it really behooves you as a winery to build up, you know, mailing list. So, um, and that's what we did. I mean, and, and we, we've got some really good reviews in, um, from the wine press and people started coming to the winery and they just loved the wine and they go, go away and tell their friends and, so the mailing list just grew and grew. And we were, you know, when we sold the wine, we were, when we sold the wine, we were um, about, you know, probably 90% of, of the inventory was going through the direct sales channel. Um, so, yeah. And so, and, and again, so that was, in, in a way, it was a little bit like getting out to the medical librarians because you got two users who were very enthusiastic got yeah. to walk in consumers, very enthusiastic, who had spread the word. They, they were our advocates, you know. Right. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they'd invite people over to their houses and say, hey, come over, we've got this great bottle of wine, you know, and, and so. Yeah. yeah, so you, um, that's really a, a, a story about email marketing in the in the early days of email marketing. I mean, email marketing came about probably in the, what, the 90s probably when it was yeah. Yeah. popular, but um, still a lot of people didn't believe in it or thought it was, you know, they, they liked the old, the old channels of marketing. And um, so you were kind of a pioneer in, in, in email marketing as well, I would say. Yeah. Well, we, um, we had somebody who's, um, who was a general manager of the winery and she, and she was excellent at, um, well, first of all, she knew the market extremely well and she knew, um, you know, basically how to run an email campaign for a winery. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So, so we, you know, without her, we wouldn't have been able to sort of figure out exactly what to do. But, you know, with, with her guidance, we, you know, we did these targeted mailings. We really um, targeted influencers as well. So we, you know, people in the wine press um, and people who the early adopters, the ones who came to the winery first, um, we would also 
target those people as well. So yeah, and um, so the email, and we would do the email marketing with each new release of, of the line. So we had something new to talk about each time. Um, and the email would go out and people would, you know, people would watch their email because um, as soon as the offers, email offers went out, people would start calling, right? And because um, they wanted to order right away because otherwise they would lose their allocation. So, right. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, and we're, and we're not talking cheap bottles of wine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, these, I mean, it currently sells for over $400 a bottle, right? So, yeah. So. Um, okay, well, and it's it's good to have a good product too. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's not like your, your wine is no good and, you know, you're creating a lot of hype around it. It's just um, the wine is in, a, in some way selling it as well. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so I would I would call the next phase, um, you know, and, and you were doing this while you were doing the vineyard as well, but you developed, maybe you'd call it an obsession with figuring out how to predict the stock market. Is that is that kind of an accurate thing to say? Um, yeah, I would say, um, uh, yes, more or less, but I, I'd say instead of um, predict the stock market, um, that we're trying to um, uh, create software that detected broad trends in the stock market, <clears throat> you know, as opposed to saying, well, we think Apple's going to go to, you know, $395 next week or something. So, uh -huh. we, <clears throat> um, and it, it began by, I was initially creating my own portfolio and <clears throat> I was, became interested in the quantitative aspect of, <clears throat> of trading. Yeah. Um, and so I, I looked around and <clears throat> found a couple of commercial software packages mm -hmm. and, you know, that would help you do, you know, uh, to build quantitative trading models. Mm -hmm. And they were really limited in what they could do. Um, so I went as far as I could with them. <clears throat> and after about a year, I decided to write my own, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and a little bit like Ovid, right? And so right. I said, okay, I'm just gonna write my own. And so I first um, wrote this, you know, basically a UI to this, to this app. Um, and then the back end, um, you know, to this <clears throat> application. And basically what it does uh, is it, it looks for, it, it looks for data that can be used um, uh, to have pre predictive value for ETFs, and we focused on ETFs because um, the it was it was I, I believe it's virtually impossible to predict the price the price of an individual stock. Mm -hmm. There's too much variation. You know, you know, it, it they may be in a sector that's hot, but you know, who knows? Maybe their director of sales resigned or. You know, they have a flaw in their manufacturing or, you know, CFOs embezzling, you know, whatever. <clears throat> but the, the premise is that um, you can, with lots of data points, and by data points, I mean, you know, analyst estimates, um, sentiment uh, analysis, um, looking at guidance from the company, looking at economic indicators. <clears throat> and, each of those is a time series mm -hmm. and 
um, if if you look at those time series and you you load them into the into the system, you can you can take each one and say, okay, how much predictive value does this have mm-hmm. for the CTF? And we've been focusing on SPY, um, you know, which is tracks the S and P five hundred, mm-hmm. and and so what we've uh, you know are all about is creating you know mining data sets looking for predictive value that can be used to predict the broad trends of, of spy and yeah. um, and you're right I have been uh, obsessed with this uh, and you know uh, we've gone through three iterations of the engine <laughs> at this point um, and we are just starting alpha testing um, with users and we're getting some really really good feedback um, but we we the the thing that's um, you know is not unique because there is another at least another company that does this. But um, the idea is that anybody anywhere in the world with a browser can come onto the platform and create a model um, that tries to uh, you know create predictive value for spy mm-hmm. uh, and using this uh, domain-specific language called EQL, Equium Query Language. Which and, you created, which you created. Yeah, yes, exactly. And, um, and so the idea is that you're thinking if, if anybody anywhere can come in and use their brains <laughs> to do this, um, that you know, um, having this collective intelligence of literally millions of people mm-hmm. uh, that that's going to far exceed the capabilities of any single investment firm, right? If you have a hedge fund, <clears throat> um, you know, even a large hedge fund, you might have, you know, hire, you know, say even 300 people to do research, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really um, limited in the, um, in, in that you only have 300 people trying to do all this research, <clears throat> you know, people trying to dig up economic data, digging up sentiment data, tracking news, you know, uh, tracking he- headlines, tracking search trends, all these things that really are far beyond <clears throat> the capabilities of any single investment firm. In this, in what we call this ecosystem, anybody can come in and either contribute data or create code models that works that data mm-hmm. to come up with these predictive models for SPY. We, ensemble, we ensemble those models and we we take each of them and, and back test them and say, okay, of these, you know, of all the models created, which are the best ones? Mm-hmm. Take those, ensemble them, when we create, we come up with a single forecast. Now the other, <clears throat> so that's a developer side of the platform. The consumer side is our retail investors. And, um, you know, as you, you know all about Robin Hood and Wall Street, that's, you know, and, but with, between all the brokers, there's are over 30 million retail investors at this point. And, and, and what they have in common is that for the most part, they have no database investment decision support. And so the idea is that they can come onto the platform and see um, 
on the platform, you know, uh, forecast for different ETFs, you know, like for gold ETF or SP 500, our small caps or silver or bonds, whatever, <clears throat> they can see this collection and they can use that collection to inform their trading decisions, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, we, will, we will charge uh, those retail investors a certain fee per month. Mm -hmm. uh, that revenue, it, and it's still a bit like the App Store model here in, in that we, um, that revenue we take and we create this pool, compensation pool for developers. Mm -hmm. And then we distribute the money to developers based on how much their contribution is used by the retail investors. Mm -hmm. So they create the, the developers who create better and better content. Right. That content gets used more and by retail investors. We get that draws more retail investors, which means more revenue goes right. into the development pool. So now we have a bigger pool of money attracting more developers. More developers means you know better you know better content, better predictions. So it's this cycle. Right? Um, it's just interesting. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, some of the some of the applications I've heard about that use Ethereum. Um, yes, you know where where you have a contract, a smart contract, right? It's this is like a smart contract, but it's not tokenized, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And one of the things that um, we want to explore um, once we have, a, you know, um, have time sort of to say, okay, let's, the time's right for this in this platform is, is to start using a cryptocurrency, um, either an existing one um, or potentially even, even create our own. The idea is that people on the platform would use this currency yeah. to, you know, to buy content, and um, and we would compensate people who create content with this cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a natural application for it, totally. you know, yeah. because because we can, for example, somebody in India writes something that's used on the platform, you know, we can send, you know. Ten dollars worth of crypto to this person immediately, right? So they don't have to worry about them setting up bank accounts and right. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. And and so um, this model, this what's called this creator economy, where you have developers creating stuff, and when their stuff gets used, they get compensated. Mm -hmm. This is a a um, a model used by Roblox, a company called Roblox, R O B L O X. Okay. A, it's a developer creator economy where developers can come on to the platform and create games or components for games. And if those things are used mm -hmm. by people who play games on the platform, then they'll get compensated. And it's the same idea, right? The, you yep. get more money, more developers, more players, and it spins that. And just to give you an idea, <clears throat> last year, um, the Roblox paid their developers a collective $280 million. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and they have over 100,000 developers, right? Um, and, you know, and so our feeling is that's, you know, that model works. And if it works for games, it's certainly going to work for investment, research, and management. Oh, totally, yeah. 
I mean, it, it, it also, I think, um, opens up the investment universe to more people. Yeah. Um, not, not only because of the token or, or the coin thing you, you mentioned, but also um, I think it turns it into the type of, uh, the type of activity that um, more generations are interested in doing. Yeah. You know, I mean, younger people, right? So yeah. that's, that's actually super interesting. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So do you think, do you think you'll be doing the, adding the tokenization of it in the, in the near future? Or is that like a? Well, it, it really depends on how, um, we want to have the platform, um, it, it needs to have a lot of liquidity. There has to be a lot of content be created and a lot of content being consumed on the retail. But yeah. once we have that cycle going and it has some volume, you know, some significant volume, yeah. um, what we'll probably do is just task a couple of people with say, okay, you know, explore this. And first thing is determine, do we use an existing cryptocurrency? Yeah. Uh, or do we build our own? Or do we do some combination? Do we start using existing crypto? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once that's, you know, working smoothly, you know, then we create our own crypto and, and do that. Um, and, Interesting. Yeah. And it really, like I can say that the work really lends itself, the platform really lends itself to this sort of tokenization. Oh yeah. yeah so. For sure. Yeah. And then, and then there's, there's also NFTs. I don't know if that fits in there anywhere, but. Yeah. I don't know that. I don't know that. I, I can't figure out how NFTs fit into what we're doing. Which is yeah. probably a good sign. I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Um. So, all right. I, I was gonna go into a bit um, that when when we all started working at uh, Quintessent. So I know I've talked to a lot of my former colleagues, and um, you know, first it was called Quintessent, then it was called Machina, now Equium. But everyone speaks with glowing admiration of the early days, of the early years of that company, and. I think there's a lot of factors involved, um, but a major reason for it in my mind is your philosophy and practice of dealing with people. And um, this is, you know, this of course has nothing to do with technology. This has to do with your personal philosophy of how people should be treated, right? And um, so never in my life, in my working life, had I gone to so many meetings where the, um, the person in charge starts with a simple, how are you, right? Where you looked me in the eye and said, how are you? And uh, it's, a, it's a bit disarming, um, like you actually care, right? And um, so that really, um, that was a, kind of a revolution, a, a revelation for me, I should say. And um, can you talk a bit about the influences of your philosophy of company culture or whatever you want to call it? Sure. Yeah, so um, I, I think it starts, I, I think the leader of the company sets the tone for the culture of the company, right? And that um, I always believed that, you know, if, if, if we have a, a, a goal, a mission, mm -hmm. and we have a passion for that mission, and if I have that passion and I can, um, you know, uh, show other people, you know, why I'm passionate about this, mm -hmm. that, that it will attract the right sort of people, the people who say, huh, that sounds really cool, interesting. So you draw you know, a lot of passionate people that way. Right. And 
I, I've always felt that, you know, there, um, I, I should probably know, I just hate any sort of corporate hierarchy, right? I mean, I feel like, you know, we're all on a team, you know, we're all contributing and that's really the, the most important thing. It's not who reports to whom or whatever. And, and so I always, I mean, I think just naturally always treated people as part of the team, right? And, um, and, I, and I think, uh, you know, it's, I, I think that part is important. And, and also just having some, um, some understanding or some um, insight that what, um, that everyone on the team has different perspectives on things Mm-hmm. And has different perspectives on how things should be done, and sometimes they don't align with, say, for example, my perspective on it. But mm-hmm. I always want to hear that perspective anyway. It doesn't mean we're going to go that route, but right. I think it's critically important to hear those those um, perspectives and and integrate them, you know, um, because they're extremely valuable. But but it, you know, basically, I think you know it. In my mind, it's just sort of human decency that you treat people who work with you, right? Like, you know, that you, you treat them with respect and respect yeah. what they do, and, and so. Right. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the working world um, doesn't have that philosophy. Um, when I started my venture in 2018, um, you know, at first I was just myself working, but then as I started to bring on other people, mostly contract people, contract workers, um, you know, it, it was, it, it was important for me to try to apply that same philosophy. And, uh, you know, I, I plan to, as the company continues to grow, I plan to grow that, um, you know, I guess, caring philosophy. I hate that word caring because it's yeah. uh, so overused, you know, right. and, um, but I think it's the truly caring, um, you know, yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I always felt like this about you. I mean, you just, you just get it, and, it, and actually, I, and also, I think it just comes naturally to you, you know, um, that uh, you know, and and maybe it's by you know, um, that you're, you know, uh, have a family of twenty five kids. Um, <laughs> so, but, um, but no, and, and so you know, I, I think it. It's sort of interesting. I always wonder about whether this is something that is can be taught, or whether it's people pick it up by observing it in action. Yeah. Um, and it's I don't know. It's I, I was thinking about um, Montessori um, when kids when first graders come into the Montessori um, uh, classroom for the first time. Mm-hmm. They're mentored by the um, fourth graders, right? mm-hmm. and um, and and the fourth graders take a lot of pride, and you know, uh, they they really want to do a good job of mentoring these younger kids. Yeah, and when those younger kids get to the fourth grade, they'll have that lesson, and they want to do the same thing. So it's really, um, so I think that's sort of you know, observing, learning you know, uh, imitating, you know, mm-hmm. that's very good, good modeling, I guess is what it. Yeah. And I think, um, 
the person at the top, you know, the, the person who's running the company, who owns the, whatever, the person at the top of the chain, right? Um, it's really important for that person to model that behavior. Otherwise, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want, but people will more or less know what's right and wrong from what the what that person does. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's, that, that leader instills the culture, um, you know, and, um, and, and also I think, um, by the leaders, the way, you know, he or she acts and treats other people. Um, I, I think that's, you know, it sets the, the tone um, and it, it also uh, sets an expectation that, you know, this is how you should treat people. And that's, it's what, it's the way I expect you, you know, as a member of the team to treat other people. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, that's always been a critically, important part so. yeah, yeah um so i bet i i don't i don't have anything to back this up but but i bet the most successful companies are ones where the leader had a vision and part of that vision though was treating people on the team with respect yeah um, and motivating those people, and you know, I, I think what happens when companies get very large is that that identity that just gets lost, and, it, and it's almost, you know, because it just can't, you know, when there's, it, it just can't carry down from one person to a thousand, right? It just doesn't. Yeah, yeah um, and I, it's it's interesting though. Um, there's a company that just opened a store near us. Um, a, a few, a couple months ago, I took my son, my 16 year old son to a hunting class. Uh, so we, you know, I, I don't know anything about hunting. And so I wanted to learn about it, learn about gun safety, learn all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we went to this class and while we were at the class, they said one of the, one of the instructors who's ex-military and real nice guy, um, but an avid hunter. And he said, um, oh, I, I wish I could be at Shields today for their opening. And I was like, Shields, what's Shields? And he said, it's this, you've not heard of Shields. So, um, so I went the next day to this comp this store Shields and um, they are a big company. So I don't know how many employees they have, but like, uh, I believe it's in the thousands of employees talking about stores all over the country. The store is gigantic. It's, we used to think Bass Pro Shops was big and you could fit five of those Bass Pro Shops inside the Shields store. Wow. Okay. They have a full, um, anyway, I don't want to spend too long talking about Shields, but the the thing that's the most um, notable to me is the way the employees are very motivated mm, yeah. um, and they all are owners. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. All, that makes, yeah. That makes like, so that may be the first company that I've ever experienced where I, I know I found out the corporate philosophy is not the corporate philosophy, but they actually give an ownership stake to every single employee. And um, that that's really interesting. I mean, you see the looks in their faces, they genuinely seem to care about whether you're happy. Yeah, yeah. No, um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, and I, I have run across that a couple times where, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure that they are owners, but um, this is a silly example, but In-N-Out Burgers, I don't know if they have those there, but in California, the employees there are so incredible. I mean, they just, 
they act like they're owners. I mean, <laughs> um, and they're so just so interested in making sure you have everything you want, that you're being well served in every aspect. But so you're right. I mean, I, I've seen that sort of, you know, uh, passion and care for the customer in, in, and, and I bet, I bet the ownership is a huge part of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so yeah, so that, that's something I've, I've considered doing as well, figuring out how to do that. But, um, so, all right. So Ken and I have done a couple episodes. Yeah. Um, I think we're, I think we've, we've run the course on Equium, unless you had anything more you wanted to say about the future of what your plan is with that or anything. No, I think, you know, we're, we're right now in alpha and, um, you know, the, the goal is to get this creator economy, you know, kickstarted and, um, you know, hopefully we'll be successful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So Ken and I did a couple episodes about the challenges in FinTech around getting quality data and storing and using it properly. So um, can you, you know, do you have anything you want to share in that regard to um, yeah. the, the challenges around that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, getting quality data and, and I'm just going to talk about time series, right? Um, and that um, it's, it's, you know, one of our advisors, um, you know, and, and actually you hear this quite often, the, the most important thing in terms of making investment investment decisions is data, data points, right? And that's what, you know, investment research firms do. They just gather data points, you know? And um, so so there are all the commercial vendors, S&P 500, FactSet, Bloomberg, and Definitive, and all, you know, they, they invest a huge amount of money in collecting, cleaning, storing, making data accessible. Right. Um, and um, they also collectively, not just them, but all data vendors are, are paranoid about people stealing their data. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, there's a, a couple of things. First, in, in this creator economy that we you know, are building, hmm. uh, we expect developers to be able to, you know, find lots of data, collect it, you know, collate it, and, and put it onto the platform. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, a vast amount of data is out there available. I mean, like Fred, Federal Reserve of St. Louis publishes, I, I don't know, like 10,000 different time series on all aspects of, you know, economy, inflation, employment, GDP. Um, but also there are things that you can just do, like you can search for, um, you can get news headlines from Google, or you can, track search trends um, or you could you know you could do things like um, write scrapers for consumer sites and see what people are saying about the products mm -hmm. so there's lots of ways to create these data sets because really the professional you know uh, commercial data firms you know fact said that's what they're doing too they're collecting data they don't they don't have proprietary data they're collecting it. so um, so yeah, so data, so it is a real challenge. And um, so <clears throat> getting it, cleaning it, storing it, um, there has to be a lot of dedication, you know. Um, and for us in, the, in this creator economy, it will be, you know, it'll, it'll be sort of um, uh, almost, it, it, the data has to be clean, 
in order to be usable. Yeah. And it also has to be able to basically have predictive value for something, you know. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm gathering data, I'm going to then test it to see, does it have predictive value? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, I'm going to say, well, is it because the data is dirty or maybe, maybe the data needs to be lagged a few months because mm -hmm. maybe inflation doesn't hit Apple till a couple quarters later or something. Mm -hmm. um, but the other challenge is, is if we want to put up the data's data time series, not only of the commercial vendors, but also of people creating um, uh, data, there's this challenge of how do we do that? How do we make it available to developers, but also protect the people who produce the data so they don't get, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and way we figured out to do that is that we, we use BigQuery. And instead of storing the actual data itself, we essentially encrypt it by for each value, we just record the relative uh, strength of that value relative to the past, say, you know, 10 days. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're looking at a price, for example, of $10, and over the last 10 days, the price has been, the maximum price has been $9, you can say, okay, this, this data point is gonna be the highest. So we use something called RSI, a version of RSI, relative strength indicator. So we just store the RSI value for all these time series rather than the data itself. So somebody you know, who you can't really steal the data because you don't have access to it. You just have, you know, um, you have access to the, the, you know, the RSI value, which really just tracks the shape of the data, you know, is, are things trending up or down or oscillating around zero? Okay. Um, but I think in general in FinTech, I think for people making platforms, research systems, any sort of software that tries to, you know, have, um, you know, value from an investment research point of view, getting data, getting clean data is, you know, the most important thing. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, um, yeah, we had a discussion. We've had several discussions with people wanting to build FinTech apps, but more recently uh, we talked to someone who just seemed very unprepared data wise. Um, and they had found some cheap data. And so we just cautioned them against the quality of it. And um, yeah, I mean, like, like you said, those big vendors, they have hundreds of people, maybe thousands who spend their whole day cleaning the data, making sure it's accurate. So, yeah. Um, also, the people seem unprepared also when it comes to creating a FinTech app. Um, uh, in FinTech, you know, you have regulation um, and you, you have other challenges as well um, with privacy, depending on what types of data you have. Um, anything else you wanna talk about regarding FinTech apps in general that's not just yeah. data? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, so with with fintech, yeah. In, in general, I mean, there's if you're if you're dealing with any uh, you if you're touching any part where things are actually being traded, where you know people are buying and selling, 
um, you know, you're under the purview of the SEC, right? And there's just, you know, yeah. hundreds of restrictions there right. that you as a, as a fintech, you know, app developer, you, you need to make sure that your platform's not being used, you know, illegally, right? I mean, um, and, and this is one of the reasons that Equium, we only are focused on forecasts for ETFs because if, if the platform were used to try to predict individual stocks, mm-hmm. anybody with insider information could then come on and, and, you know, and the SEC would shut us down as they should because our platform is being used illegally. But with ETFs, there's really no such thing as insider information because you have, you know, hundreds or dozens of companies and, you know, you can't get insider information on all of those. It's just, you know, absolutely. So, um, so I think um, the, I think the other thing is um, you look at the, uh, the companies that have failed in the space. I'm thinking of Quantopian. Yeah. You need to give, as a FinTech man, you need to give people easy to use tools, you know, yeah. Quantopian had a huge learning curve. That was part of the problem. The other part is they only had price volume data. Yeah. Uh, and it was really po- impossible to build forecasts just on price volume data. So. Yeah, they even had, they even had um, models that people were putting real money into. And so I was, su- I was surprised when they shut down because it looked to me like they were on the, uh, you know, on the upward path, but. Yeah, I think they, you know, they've been in business since 2012 and they tried a lot of different pivots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think end of the day, what the lesson was is, is you cannot build tradable quantitative models just using Python and price volume data. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you need the, you need very rich sets of data. You need, you know, uh, thousands of data sets from you know economic estimate guidance sentiment all these things right. uh, and if you think about all those as weak signals you know mm-hmm. that not any one of them is going to be you know enough but together in aggregate if they're all weak signals signals together they can produce a, a strong signal mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and it seems like um, price volume data. I mean, everybody's got price volume data. Everybody. I mean, you could you could get it for free. You know, you yeah. you could have been compiling that yourself. So right. yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so the last question mark um, is uh, this is this is like about building companies, and um, a lot of people believe that when things are going well, um, like like you would like them to all the time then right. you get it right. And if there's struggles or, or battles, then you did something wrong. But I'm of the opinion that the challenges and the hard times that you face are, are a sign, not a sign that you did something wrong, but a sign of a kind of, in a, in a sense, a kind of blessing. And um, to some people that might seem a little perverse, but I think it's actually optimistic. Um, well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I agree 100%. I, my feeling is if you're the leader of a company, and you're sitting there and saying, you know, things are going pretty well. I think we're just cruising along here. Right. That's really that's a huge red flag <laughs> because yet the the essence of a company is challenges every day, right? I mean, every day, every minute of the day, you're you know you're facing challenges, you're meeting them, you're solving them, and 
as long as the company is doing that, the company is doing well and it's probably growing and on the right path. Mm-hmm. Once it starts to, to glide and cruise, you know that something's wrong <laughs> um, because you know it's just um, it's there's you know there's to grow it it involves pain and because you're trying to grow this thing and you're you know when you grow it all these problems you know are coming to the fore and and they're not problems like as in flaws they're problems as in challenges as we grow and address this new market or this new product or, or whatever yeah. the challenges that come with that so i i mean i 100 agree with you is that the definition the essence of a company is something that continually you know faces challenges doesn't shy away from them meets them um and you know and, and like you said i think you know it is a it is a blessing i mean if you, you know that you have all those challenges because if you don't something's really right something's really wrong yeah yeah well um i really appreciate your time mark and uh thanks a lot for doing this um and uh you know here's to the first of of dozens of times that i'll be interviewing you over the life of i think the um it's 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 great to see also you know you uh, what you've done in in your growth and your you know leadership um, and I think it's you know uh, I, I think it's it's it bodes well for you know your company <laughs> so, so, so. Um, yeah thanks a lot and um, will uh, let me know if I can do anything for you and yeah talk to you I'll, soon yeah great that's fine right. right. I'll be in touch with regarding the alpha. Sounds good. Thank you. Okay. Okay.